Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is trafficking and joining me in conversation is Megan Malik. Megan Malik joined the Women's Fund in 2015 as the Trafficking Project Manager. She is working to combat sex trafficking in Nebraska through the development of a comprehensive approach that includes research, victim services, and public awareness. Megan's previous experience includes serving as the Children and Family Center Director at Nebraska Children's Home Society, the Young Families Initiative Supervisor at Lutheran Family Services, and the Executive Director of the Nebraska Court-Appointed Special Advocates Association. Megan holds a master's degree in public administration from University of Nebraska at Omaha and a Bachelor of Arts degree in human resources and family sciences from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Megan, thanks for coming into the studio. Thank you for having me here. Tell me a little bit about the Women's Fund. Yeah, so the Women's Fund has been around over 25 years in the Omaha area, really focusing on three different things. We do research uh, around issues affecting women and girls, and then we look for solutions around those issues, and we really try to fund innovation and ways to tackle those issues. And then we also try to bring about dynamic change through policy solutions. And so we look at everything from domestic violence to economic security to trafficking to to, you know, comprehensive sex ed, things that affect women and girls to ensure that they have opportunities to reach their full potential. What drew you to this work? So I think from a very young age, I knew that um, I wanted to advocate for children and families. That was, um, I, I always really knew that I wanted to go into some sort of work that way and started my career early on uh, with the Court Appointed Special Advocate Association. And it really just showed me that oftentimes youth or families can slip through the cracks and the the trauma that they've experienced or, you know, um, the lack of services that they've been given, it, it lit a fire under me that I knew I wanted to give more. And so when I was approached about trafficking, it was a natural fit to say, okay, I, I want to I wanna join with other community members, with other partners, and take on this issue because no woman or girl should ever have to experience this. No man or boy should ever have to experience this. We're recording this in the American heartland, the Midwest. So trafficking only exists on TV, right? I think that, you know, the movie Taken did a disservice to trafficking, right? I mean, it, it was it's easiest for it's easy for us to imagine like somebody being kidnapped and taken to a different city or, you know, brought across the border and 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 sex trafficked. But it's really hard for us to imagine that it's happening to our neighbor who's living next to us and and that child's going to school day in and day out but in the evenings they're being sold in a hotel and raped multiple times and and it, it's it's almost unfathomable and then oftentimes we bury our heads in the sand and what we're hearing from survivors in our community is that that is what has happened over the course of the years and so we're really trying to say look get your heads out of the sand, shine a light on this, and realize that no zip code is immune from sex trafficking. 
before we talk about some of the the human narratives and the human traumas and maybe some of the human uh, survival stories and, and hopes, maybe some of the data to give us a context uh, around which we can talk about this this issue. Yeah, so what we know, um, we have partnered with the Creighton Human Trafficking Initiative, and they have provided us some of the first empirical data in the state of Nebraska to look at what is happening here. And so that data came from primarily Backpage.com, which is a little bit like a Craigslist where you can buy and sell individuals for commercial sex. And so what they did was they looked at that data and they said, on any given month, over 900 individuals are are sold often multiple times for sex across the state of Nebraska. And then they dug deeper into that data and said about 70 to 75% of these individuals show at least one indicator of trafficking and a minimum of 15% are showing multiple indicators of trafficking. So that that information, that report really shined a light on the fact that it is happening. When you look, they, they did a heat map across the state of Nebraska, and you can look, like, no area is immune. I mean, you've got small communities with red dots, right, that are being mentioned specifically in back page ads. And if you have a commercial sex market that's alive and well, you naturally are likely going to have individuals who are being sex trafficked. It seems stunning that this happens, even though objectively I, I know that it does. But but it seems stunning to wrap one's head around that. And do you find that part of the challenge that you face in dealing with this issue is a degree of denial and also a degree of denial because most of the people making policy decisions that would support this tend to be men? So two things about that. One, I want to celebrate the fact that LB 289 passed this year 48 to zero. So LB 289 is um, a trafficking bill that really went after um, increasing penalties for individuals who are traffickers, but also increasing penalties for individuals who solicit um, commercial sex without consent and really defining those individuals as traffickers as well. And then an individual who solicits a child for commercial sex is de facto a sex trafficker now. And that's really, really important because in the state of Nebraska, a child cannot consent to commercial sex. That really is um, rape if you are purchasing a child. So we needed to ensure that those penalties uh, were increased. I was um, just at a national conference talking to, I was talking to a judge and she we were talking about an issue and she was talking about, well, you could look at it legislatively, but that'll probably take you a few years. And I laughed at her and I said, no. Nebraska is serious about this issue. We are tackling this, and we just passed a serious bill 48 to 0. So I want to applaud our legislature for taking this seriously, and specifically Senator Pansing Brooks. She has championed this issue, and she really took the torch from former Senator Amanda McGill, who first took this issue on in a state that really was likely in denial at that time. So I say all that to say yeah, we still are very much in denial. I mean, there were things said on the floor during that legislative debate that were shocking. 
and shouldn't have been said. Um, you know, we we can't look at this issue and, and not say it's a heinous crime. What we know happens to children and adults who are sex trafficked is oftentimes, you know, severe abuse, um, you know, um, multiple rapes, um, you know, they're uh, oftentimes isolated from family members and you know they're um, they're malnourished they're, they're the, the litany of lists of, of things can go on and on and so we really had to had to create a bill that had a punishment that really fit the crime and part of that is about purchasers right you mentioned men what we know is that men are mostly, who are purchasing individuals for commercial sex. But what we needed to make sure that we went after was individuals who were purchasing people for non-consensual sex, right, for without consent. That was really important because if you are knowingly purchasing somebody from a trafficker, right, from a facilitator, that person is not in control of being able to say yes or no to that you know, tr- transaction for a lack of better words. And that's sex trafficking. And so you now as a solicitor can be held as a sex trafficker. And that's really important. The other thing that was really important about LB 289 was it provided some protections for um, individuals who have been trafficked, because oftentimes they have to recruit or participate in the trafficking venture for survival. And then oftentimes, then they're prosecuted for that. And so this bill protects provided some protections from prosecutions for those things. I would imagine that those people that are the, the victims of being sex trafficked span a, you know, a, a continuum of types of people. But in so far as you can, could you describe um, some of the people that do become victims of, of this crime? Yeah, what we know is that survivors of, you know, sex trafficking come from all walks of life and are all genders are all ages and and we've we've seen that not only here in Nebraska we have seen that in um, you know nationally and so um, but we we oftentimes when we train and we, when we talk about you know how do we how do we make sure that we're putting things in place specifically like around youth there's certain vulnerabilities so youth who are missing from from care youth that are in the child welfare system are much more vulnerable to being trafficked youth that have been um, sexually abused as children again more likely um, to be trafficked and there's some good research and, and good data on that but you know other other things like poverty like if this is an individual's only way to put a roof over their head, you know, then that's an opportunity for a trafficker to exploit someone. And so a trafficker oftentimes looks for vulnerabilities. But we all have vulnerabilities within us, right? I mean, whether it's that we're looking for companionship or, or belonging or a safe place to stay, um, that can become a, a vulnerability that a trafficker can then begin to exploit and sex traffic somebody. And oftentimes, it happens slowly. What we know is that traffickers can be strangers, they can be parents, they can be, you know, husbands or boyfriends, they can be, you know, relatives. And so traffickers, um, same same thing, they, they come from all different walks of life, all, all different, you know, socioeconomic statuses. And so 
to to pigeonhole or to say this is what that looks like. And that's what makes this really complex and where we have to really drill down and say we have to change this culture of of being okay with purchasing individuals for non-consensual sex. We, we have to change that culture. If we begin to change that culture, if there is not a demand for this, then there's no incentive for traffickers to traffic people. After all you put me through, you think I despise you. But in the end, I wanna thank you, cause you made me that much stronger. On the one hand, I had, I had this idea of trafficking being managed and conducted by, you know, a well-oiled criminal enterprise. But it sounds as if that that's only one part of, of this narrative. It seems as if there are multiple types of situations in which someone may be, uh, you, know, you know, this criminal groomer. Um, exploiting the vulnerabilities in in people. Yeah, I mean the 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 way the market looks different depending on you know who that trafficker is. So we do see you know large trafficking rings where traffickers are communicating with each other across the nation, where they have you know groups of individuals that they are trafficking and that they are controlling them you know from from far away. So we see those large types of enterprises, but we also see the the parent. I mean, we had a case. In Nebraska, in Kearney, Nebraska, where um, the mother was sex trafficking her young daughter, and and so this this can look different for various reasons, and so we again to really be able to tackle this, we're gonna have to tackle demand. The trafficking project that you're working on, you have various partners. You've mentioned Creighton as as one of them, and that's the research arm. So what are some of the other partners that you're working with and what are some of the other approaches that you're taking to address the overall problem? So we're partnering with the Nebraska um, Attorney General's Office and the Salvation Army. They have a joint grant from um, the federal government to to put a task force together. And so the the Attorney General's Office leads the law enforcement piece of it, and the Salvation Army leads the services across the state. And so we've really partnered with them, and to to help not only convene folks around a table to to begin putting plans in place, but also begin putting responses in place. 
piece. So so if te- not only teaching people what this looks like, but also teaching people how to respond to it and who to call and so putting response teams across the state. Another s- strong um, part- couple of partners are the Nebraska um, Alliance of Child Advocacy Centers. We have a really strong child advocacy center system across the state that can respond to um, youth victims of um, either physical or sexual abuse and trafficking. And then we also partner closely with the um, Coalition to End Domestic and Sexual Assault, which has, you know, domestic violence and sexual assault programs across the state. So again, utilizing existing resources as response systems so that when we do identify somebody who has been trafficked, we can put services in play. So we're really, you know, we're still at a beginning stage stage, we have, we have, I would say, achieved a lot with setting up response systems across the state, doing legislation, getting partners on board. This last fall, the Nebraska Human Trafficking Task Force trained, I think it was over 700 individuals, uh, first responders on, you know, what this looks like, how to even investigate these cases, how to provide a trauma-informed response to survivors of sex trafficking. So really digging down. And now that next step, is setting up those response systems. And so we're fortunate here, another strong partner here in the Omaha area is the Women's Center for Advancement, the WCA. They also have a federal grant with um, the um, Youth Emergency Services Yes House. And so they are another strong partner. So we really, over the last two years, just have continued to add great partners to the table. Um, But I would say the most important partner at this table and the strongest partners at this table are our survivors. And we need to continue to grow that survivor leadership. And we as service providers or conveners or government officials need to stand not only behind but alongside survivors as they help us tackle this issue. We need to learn from them and listen to them because it's their voices that are ultimately going to change this. So clearly a big part of this overall effort is public awareness, and there seem to be various facets to that, um, and, and one clearly is allowing the survivor narratives to to come forward more forcefully. You talked about multiple indicators to uh, understand, for example, on Backpage, um, how you might discern whether someone is is you know a victim of sex trafficking. So what are these aspects of public awareness that you're working on? And what would you say to the public? What should they be aware of? Yeah. So I think we talk about simple things like looking for individuals who might be controlled by another individual. You know, they they can't speak for themselves. They've, they've got another individual that's controlling them. They might not have possession of their own documents, so they might not have their own ID or documentation or, or be able to be in control of their own money. Or they might have a lot of excess cash or a lot of excess hotel keys. Things like looking for tattoos that might indicate that a trafficker has branded them. So barcodes or potentially a trafficker's name on, on them. Um, I've, I've spoken about youth who are missing from care, you know. So um, if, a, if a youth, you know, goes missing from care and then comes back, are we asking some of those questions around that? But I think it's important for the public to know to to look for that kind of suspicious activity. If you're, if you're in a hotel room, you know, and you see see, you know, multiple girls being kept in in a room, but there's just 
a revolving door of individuals coming in and out, that that should be a red flag to make a phone call. And the public can always call 911 here in, in Nebraska and report that, or they can also call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center at 888-3737-888. That's a, a number that you can always just call to give a tip as well of, uh, I'm seeing this activity and I'm not sure if if this is what this is, but I'd, I'd like to report it. And so, um, you know, we hear stories of, survivors being dropped off at hotels and for days and and being told to make a certain quota right and and then the police you know recovering them at some point and saying well you were there alone and your trafficker wasn't with you why didn't you just leave or why didn't you tell somebody and the survivor saying nobody even looked at me you know, I went in and out of that room. And if I would have told somebody, nobody would have believed me. And I think that's, again, the culture that we have to begin to shift is looking at this, not only looking at it, that it's not the choice. This individual is not making a choice. They're not voluntarily doing this. Um, but also of that, are we going to have this village mentality of taking care of each other, right? Of 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 looking out and, 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 and not having you know, not having that bystander effect of just looking the other way, but but bystander intervention. I think that's really important for not only the trafficking issue, but for a lot of different issues that if we did a better job at that, we could affect trafficking. It arrested me and brought me, uh, I'm sure when you talked about a barcode, for example, as a tattoo on, on a victim of, of trafficking. And um, it brought me up short just because it, it really illustrates the commodification of, of another human being. Earlier, you talked about the market, and in some ways, it just brings to mind that this whole idea of this as one vast, um, horrific retail operation, um, which does, though, make me wonder about the various... Uh, comparisons we might make, for example, to the war on drugs. And as long as there's demand, then there'll be a supply of drugs and so on and so forth. So to some degree, we're trying to tackle one end of this this endeavor. But you've also mentioned uh, the the men and others who buy and pay for um, you know non-consensual sex. So what are the ways that perhaps that aspect of, of this demand can be reduced in some way? So that so that there is no market for this kind of activity. I mean, I think that you're bringing up a question that everybody nationwide is is really looking at. And it, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a fair question. One of the things that I go back to is that when when comparisons are made on you know the war on drugs and 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 we look at that and I and I think in what other in what other situation is a human being a commodity that we all of a sudden decide that that's okay and that we have to just have some sort of general acceptance for it. And and I, I just can't get there. I just can't get there. I just tell myself we have to do better as a country. We have to do better as a community. And, and I think we have to think about this starting early 
And we we can't ignore that we have to think about what is a healthy relationship, right? And 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 talking to our youth and me talking to my kiddos about, you know, what does it mean to be in a healthy relationship? And and what does that look like? And 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 what do you want from that relationship? And talking about those things early and often and talking about bodily autonomy and that they have the ability to have control over their bodies and and say no and and thinking about that we're also providing education to the potential next generation of buyers right and and teaching them that that's it's, it's not okay and beginning to change that culture so when we talk about this sometimes we we talk about smoking right and the and the war on right it used to be really acceptable you know to smoke we would be sitting here on the radio smoking right and now if i did that you would be like what Just are you doing we are sitting here smoking. <laughs> <laughs> right and and now it's definitely like it's a taboo right like you don't do that and in a little bit it's kind of culturally acceptable to like purchase somebody for sex and there's jokes about you know hookers in the movies all the time and we you know we see these individuals as you know throwaway individuals and we have to begin to change that culture and we have to begin to stop that and can we get to that place where in 20 years from now then it's just very very like culturally unacceptable to make that type of decision and and it's going to happen with prevention education, but it's also going to happen with increased penalties, with an increased risk of being caught. You know, there's there's going to, we're going to have to tackle this as as a community. Keep on pushing. Keep on pushing. You are listening to Lies. We'll be back after the break. I can't stop now. Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. The theme of this week's show is trafficking, and joining me in conversation is Megan Malik. This is, for so many reasons, just a terrible thought. With technology, there are apps like Tinder, and now you can basically have a consensual sex marketplace. And it made me think, well, maybe that's part of the solution, because now instead of people... um, paying for sex where there's an abusive relationship, now there's an opportunity for consenting people to come together. But then the flip side to that in my head is 
this doesn't seem to do much necessarily to enhance our sense of um, esteem or autonomy. So I'm not sure where I stand on this. It's complex, right? And even thinking about consent, like teaching consent is really, really important. And and thinking about how we're teaching that and what does that mean? And and yeah, social media and technology has changed what this looks like dramatically, right? Because there are there's little to no. track where you know you've got individuals who are being sold on the street right it's it's almost always happening over the internet uh, with text messages quietly under our nose right it's when you think of it you you go to your mind that cd hotel and that yes probably but just as often at the hotel that i'm staying at on vacation with my kiddo right i mean it's it happens everywhere and so um I think going back to teaching about healthy relationships and consent and and that bodily autonomy is just going to be critical. Um, so it must horrify you then that um, there are very many school districts across the country that regard the idea of teaching children about bodily autonomy, consent, uh, safe sex, uh, healthy relationships is something that is terrifying to to them for a variety of reasons. Is is this a challenge for your work? Do you want some tissues to wipe away the tear? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. And I, so I come from this place of having worked in the child abuse neglect field for pretty much a, a good majority of my career, right? So I've seen some of the worst cases of child sexual abuse and thinking about what could have happened had that child had that conversation in school and been told that it's not okay for somebody to do that to you. It's you can say no, you can tell somebody to create that safe atmosphere or for that teen girl who was date raped, right? And so I think we have to we have to understand that empowering young people with information is a positive and a protective factor and not a negative one. And I, I know it's scary. I get it. I'm a parent. I'm a parent of an eight and six-year-old and my eight-year-old's super smart and he's asked a lot of questions already and I want to die when I talk about it. I do. But it's so important because I am also that parent who doesn't trust anyone, right? I'm like the the neighborhood, like, I, I'm sorry, I don't trust you. I've worked in this field for a really long time. Like, just, it's not that I don't like you, but I just, and, and, and so I'm that parent who's constantly telling, you know, my child about, you know, safe touch and, and, and unsafe touch and what does that look like and what does that feel like? And that is really, really important. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, these issues are complex and, and people feel really strongly about these issues, but we have to provide youth information and and knowledge is power and talking about healthy relationships and bodily autonomy just has to be part of it. So how has this work changed you and your relationship with with people? So this has definitely been probably the most challenging job that I've ever had because you're talking about systems change, right? And you're talking about systems that are that are 
broken systems, right? We know that the child welfare system is a is a system that we have work to do, and we we know that our correction system, right, is, is is a system that we have work to do, and and so it's there's a lot of challenges, and and sex trafficking, while it's happened for a long time, is a newer issue nationally. So when you're looking for roadmaps of how to do this best, there's not a lot of that out there. So that, I think, has created a lot of challenges um, in, in tackling this. But what I will say that I'm proud to sit here and say that we have incredible partners that sit at the table together as a team and can have these discussions. I mean, I'm swallowing hard as I talk about some of the stuff, knowing that my partners would, would not agree with everything I said, right? But that is what a partnership and a multidisciplinary team is about. And that's how leadership is about coming to the table and having those kind of disagreements and still rolling your sleeves up and saying, we in the end want individuals in our communities to be safe. We want survivors to be able to access services. And we want the individuals who are participating who are traffickers or who are soliciting individuals for non-consensual sex to be held accountable, we can all come to that agreement. And so I think that's what what drives most of us in, in having a team that's a, a strong team. We're really fortunate. The Nebraska Attorney General just hired Annie Boatwright as the state uh, forensic nurse um, examiner um, to really standardize uh, sexual assault kits across the state, provide training and education on sexual assault, domestic violence, and trafficking. And that will be a huge, impactful position for our healthcare organizations across the state to ensure that we are providing trauma-informed and effective care to patients who have been victims of these horrific crimes. And so having partners like that also at this table with us, I think, drives me. And then just knowing that when I get lost in the systems stuff and the politics and all of that, coming back to the survivors, is that's, that's what it's about. And, and coming back to my survivor friends who, who helped me keep centered and who help drive this work, that's what this has to be about. And it has to be about ensuring that the next person, that we're providing protections for that next person for this not to happen to them. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong And I grew strong And I learned how to get along And so you're back from out of space I just walked in to find you here with that sad look upon your face I should have changed that stupid lock I should have made you leave your key If I'd have known for just one second you'd be back to bother me You're the one who tried to hurt me with goodbye. The 
obviously not revealing people's identities, but could you talk us through the journey, the experience through this situation uh, of, of a survivor? Again, every case and or every survivor's journey is, you know, very different depending on, you know, um, what their trafficking experience look like. So no one case looks like the other. I will say, you know, typically, you know, the the abuse that is suffered um oftentimes they know their traffickers, right? That's that's fairly common. It, it might be a boyfriend, it might be a family member, it might be, you know, a, a spouse. And so that is, is often co- a common situation. And what we know is that the data talks about usually sometime in the teen years, like maybe around 16 is what the National Human Trafficking Resource Center is kind of talking about. I think 16, 17, an individual is likely to be, you know, recruited into um, sex trafficking. And so this, for some, it's it, it might be a a where they're recruited at a young age and this becomes then their life and and their only ability to survive because they were trafficked at such a young age. And then, you know, um, getting out of the life is so complex sometimes. Uh, You know, addiction often becomes a survival mechanism or, you know, the trafficker uses addiction as a control mechanism. And so a lot of survivors are, are facing addiction. They're facing felony criminal charges because of things their trafficker has made them do. Um, not not because they chose that, but because, again, it was survival for them. And so um, the, the health the health care implications, there was a recent study um, done by the Beasley Institute of Sex Trafficking Survivors. And I mean, 98% of the individuals in that study had experienced like a severe physical trauma, severe neurological trauma. I mean, it was just in the list of just physical health implications was just went on and on and on. So, so knowing that what survivors are experiencing and in, in, in getting out of that life and finding their journey to where they want to be um, is is complex and that it has to be led by that survivor and it's definitely journey oriented and so our role as a community and our role as you know providers is to come alongside them with that journey and support them and let them direct that journey that's just really really important it's not our role to rescue anybody what are some of the ways that um, survivors uh, locally may be um finding ways to reintegrate themselves healthily uh, in all aspects that you mentioned um, into into what we might regard as a healthy, normal social life. You know, reaching out to organizations like the Salvation Army who have trafficking specialists or the Women's Center for Advancement who also has a trafficking project manager, that is a really great first point of contact. Um, Those individuals can provide case management services to navigate whether it's, you know, housing that's needed, whether it's, um, you know, addiction or mental health services. They can really provide all of those um, types of connections and, and warm handoffs and 
and um, and uh, s- sometimes you know survivors will come and, and won't have documentation or you know needing to get connected to some you know like Medicaid services so they can do all of those pieces. We're really really fortunate in our community that Magdalene Omaha will be opening up soon, and Magdalene is a program that was started out of um, Nashville and is all about survivor-led really healing. And so it'll be a two-year residential program um, for survivors. And there's no authority in the home. The Their survivors get to stay in the home. And then um, they really will be provided not only services, but then also an opportunity for long-term empl- employment. I think that that's one of the things that we as a community can also come behind and support because those crisis services are critical and needed. But that's usually when we stop and we say, good luck. You know, we've provided you a place to stay for 30 days and we've provided you some therapy and now figure it out. And that's not good enough, right? We we have to provide, you know, real economic opportunities out of the commercial sex trade if we're really going to be assisting survivors. That's going to be a really, really important piece. So, you know, I think for, you know, companies out there to be thinking about what are those opportunities that they can provide. The Magdalene model in Nashville created Thistle Farms, which is a justice enterprise creating candles and and um, soaps and stuff. And you think, oh, yeah, come on. They're in every Whole Foods across the country. I mean, survivor-led from top to bottom. I mean, it's really incredible the model that they have created. The founder jokingly said, look, we did a national search for our marketing person because we wanted to get in the Whole Foods. And we hired our, um, you know, one of our survivor leaders, and she got us into Whole Foods. And just, you know, she's talking the talk and walking the walk. And I think that's important for us as a community to, to really do that. Especially as it seems to me that I, I don't necessarily blame us, but we as a community are culpable in turning a blind eye to what is happening uh, under our noses. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's really easy for us to go home at night and and just look the other way or to think, well, that person wanted to be doing that, right? They they went into that life. They, you know, they seem like they're voluntarily there. And it's really easy for us to look the other way, especially when you think about that oftentimes traffickers target the most vulnerable who, so it might be a youth missing from care who nobody is looking for. Right. Or it might be a w- individual living on the streets, again, that nobody is looking for. And, and so then for us to just say, well, I didn't know that person. I'm, I'm going to look the other way. And yeah, and it really it's going to take a, a community. We have to build community around around survivors. We have to build community around this issue to tackle this issue. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Now that you're out of my life, I'm so much better. You thought that I'd be weak without you, but I'm stronger. You thought that I'd be broke without you, but I'm richer. You thought that I'd be sad without you, I love harder. You thought I wouldn't grow without you, now I'm wiser. thought that I'd be helpless without you, but I'm smarter. You thought that I'd be stressed without you, but I'm chilling.
I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. The theme of this week's show is trafficking, and joining me in conversation is Megan Malik. What has surprised you most about this work? I, I mean, I would say some of the surprise, surprise is, is just that it is a bit accepted, right? And, and, and some of the things that came out of our last legislative session is, is for, as comments. And, and I heard this one interview once, and it was so right on. And they said, you know, if, a, if an adult has um, sex with a minor, it's rape, right? But if an adult pays a minor for sex, we all of a sudden in our minds think of it a different way. And why is that? And that is, has been, you know, probably as we think about how we really are going to make a dent in this and how we're going to change this, that's probably something that has been uh, just surprise or maybe hurts your heart a little bit, right? Uh, it makes you have a little less faith in humanity. Um, but then you see all the amazing things that are being done. And, and you can see that some oftentimes with some education, that can change and that people can start to see it differently. So that's a, an interesting visual metaphor, this idea of um, your heart cracking every time you come across an incidence of one human being being trafficked. And I would imagine, given your work, that your heart has been cracked a thousand times over. So how do you keep it whole? Well, I mean, you, you just, you have to believe in the good of people. And you also have to believe, like, I've just always had a very strong belief in that we as a community will protect our children. Like, that is what I think has always really driven me and that, um, you know, if if a parent had the inability to protect their child for whatever reason they might have experienced and then we fail them once that child gets into the system and we fail to protect them, then that's on us. And I just have this belief that that we we can do better. And and that's what I think keeps driving me. And then, you know, being able to be a part of a mission at the Women's Fund of Omaha is is critical because the other pieces that we're doing, like economic security, I mean, that will affect trafficking, right? Like that is critical to to ensuring that women have real opportunities. And so um, that also, I think, keeps me driven and, and keeps me focused. Um, but thinking about that, that prevention, those prevention pieces, whether it's working with parents, you know, with, with new babies, um, whether it's helping lift people out of poverty, uh, whether it's providing prevention education to our youth, we need as a community to be thinking about investing in that more than trying to band-aid. We want to be preventing people from being trafficked. And and we have to be thinking about that instead of putting this band-aid on the other end of the system, because I think we won't be as effective. One facet of America that, that fascinates me and I'm so admiring of is this pioneering entrepreneurial spirit that, that is inherent in the founding of the modern nation. The flip side to that, though, is is potentially a degree of individualism and a certain self-centeredness that um, 
if if you aren't somewhere, then you don't deserve to be there. And um, you know, to the to the winner, the spoils. And the flip side then to that is is it doesn't help community look look after itself. And I wonder what it is in that ecosystem that was there an epiphany moment for you that shaped this value system that you are now living in, you know, in, in your career? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's such a good question. I mean, I grew up in a small community, you know, so, um, I mean, community was is just your everyday life. I mean, we, going to the movies was a big deal for me. <laughs> like getting a video, running a video was a big deal for me. Right. So you just, and, and, but I also, I grew up in the country and so getting to go to town and, and be with, you know, friends and, and, and family was important, but I, I, I just, I, I'm guessing that I've seen change happen through community. You know, I just feel like, and through relationship. And I've always had a strong personality where I would disagree about politics or something with people. Um, but if you truly had a relationship with that person, then you could have that disagreement, right? And and you could come back to the table and you could say, okay, I know we disagree on that, but where's our common ground there? And how can we come together and work you know, towards the same mission or, or whatever it might be. Um, and I think that it's probably because I've seen that be much more effective than just saying, well, I can do this by myself. I mean, you know, no one person, no one agency can tackle trafficking. And it won't just be agencies, right? This will take community and community building. And um, that is really what what that Magdalene model in Nashville is about. I got to experience, I just went to that conference and I got to experience that graduation. So it's fresh on my mind. And to seeing the community of Nashville come to that graduation was one of the most moving things I had seen. And it was, it was a very clear sign of, we are with you. We are a part of this. Uh, we are not turning our backs on you. Like, it, I mean, it was really amazing. And I, I think that I think you're right. We've we as a society have become a little bit different than that and individualistic. And so how do you balance that? You know, if you could figure that out, Stuart, that would be great. <laughs> Cuz how do you balance and champion individualism and you know, and and also, you know, people working hard and being rewarded for their hard work, but also knowing that like it's my responsibility to help take care of others like like as as I do well, and if others experience challenges, that's my role. And especially because I was given opportunities, right? I, I had parents who gave me opportunities, who helped and supported me, and and not everybody has those opportunities. Whether it's because of the color of your skin, or because you were living in poverty, or you know all of those different pieces. And so for us to blindly think, I myself have you know, created all the success in my life is just silly. We're always, all of us have people that have helped and supported to bring us up. And so we only should be providing that to others. That's, that's the right thing to do. If we know, as we do, that the heartland has a problem with sex trafficking, and there are indicators that, that we can discern that, the existence of that, can we in turn then look at communities where there is no sex trafficking 
and work out what it is that makes that community what it is, you know, what it is. And then understanding that, maybe use that as a model to eradicate trafficking. I think that's one of the largest challenges right now with with trafficking is is the data and that they're just being very poor data out there right now. And so sifting through that, I mean, that's one of the things that, um, you know, our research hers have done is look at you know all the studies because other other countries have tried different models and and there's no real clarity on what is effective and what's worked and and finding a community that has eradicated sex trafficking if if anybody knows out there any listeners out there we'd love to hear about it because that's I mean that is one of the challenges is there being a lack of really good research and data and and being a lack of best practices or evidence-based practices. I think some things are starting to evolve and are 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 starting to come out. Um, we can look at things like peer mentorship and, of course, trauma-informed care. You know, we know those pieces are effective, but there's no real good roadmap for this. So let me offer you the final word what would you want to share about this this subject i think it's important for the community to know that if you see something say something call that national human trafficking resource center but also know that it's as a community member it's your role to get engaged and to to get involved in into to helping build community around survivors of sex trafficking, helping to build a community that doesn't tolerate the purchasing of non-consensual sex, to helping to look at what are those factors that are creating an environment that supports this, whether it's, you know, individuals in poverty, whether it's um, youth who are missing from care, all of those different pieces, we as a community have a responsibility and a role, but we all have different gifts and talents. And so think about what is your gift and what is your talent and what what you can bring and where you can plug in. Uh, that's It's important. We were talking at a meeting this morning about needing, you know, more dentists to give pro bono care or lawyers to give, you know, um, legal advice to survivors. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to be able to plug in to this and so giving your gifts in those ways. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. With me in conversation today has been Megan Malik. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.